Welcome to the dignity of suffering. Have you ever been brought to your knees by the challenges of life? What if you could enter the world of the therapist, be a fly on the wall, and hear their stories and insights into life's biggest challenges? Discovering a place to learn from the experiences of others who've tried to find dignity in their suffering. Each week, Mitchell Smolkin takes a candid look at the trials and tribulations of being alive. Mitchell is a registered psychotherapist, author, and speaker. He hopes to show that slowing down and becoming curious about our human experience can enrich our perspectives and plant our feet more firmly on the ground. Now, here's Mitchell. Welcome to podcast number seven. I am so intrigued by the human being's ability to survive. If you've been following my podcast, you'll have heard me share some of the personal examples from my own family of perseverance, none more compelling than my grandfather emerging from the Holocaust. His entire family gone, and his continued pursuit to follow his dreams, become a dentist, and eventually move to Canada in 1962. I don't know if I shared what happened next, but it may help us connect to today's topic, Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory. My grandfather needed to recertify as a dentist in Canada, which he attempted to do by enrolling at the University of Toronto in their dentistry school. Here he was, already surviving the Second World War by having been conscripted into the Red Army, then working in the mines in Russia. After the war, discovering that his entire family was gone, he met my grandmother and then spent a number of years living apart from his wife and daughter as he pursued and completed dentistry school in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. They then emigrated to Canada and starting again in a new country and with a new language. To put food on the table, he worked the night shift, carrying the tools of an electrician while going to school during the day. It is no surprise that when he didn't pass one of the technical exams, he broke, literally. My grandmother talks about how he was on all fours, barking like a dog, and she had my mother and my aunt, who was a small child at the time, to take care of. The legacy of this wound to his pride and his ambitions permeated the rest of his life. He got some support and ended up becoming a denturist with many beloved patients. But after my grandparents died, I discovered many letters pleading with the Minister of Education to reconsider their case. The reason I tell you this story is because today in this episode, we discuss a theory that zeroes in on what happens to the individual when they are overwhelmed and beaten down. Psychotherapist Justin Sensori takes us on a tour and gives us a really fine explanation of some of the states that our autonomic nervous system will take us to should it feel the need to protect us. 
I have come back to this idea many times in the podcast because, as you'll hear us discuss, awareness of these incredible capacities to dissociate is crucial to normalize so much of how we deal with difficult life situations. Furthermore, I make the point of really scrutinizing why we might end up in our adult life with deficits in being able to regulate negative emotion. Therapy is often seen as an enigma, and it is true that it can take myriad directions. What is clear, though, across so many theoretical frameworks is the role that adequate emotional mirroring by our parents plays in our ability to feel safe in later life. I feel compelled to tell the joke about the three mothers sitting around talking about their sons. The first one gushes about her son and says, Oh, he must love me so much for my birthday. He sent me on an all-expenses-paid trip to Paris. The second mother, not wanting to be outdone, says, Oh, well, my son, he truly loves me. For my birthday, he got us the dream kitchen that we always wanted. The last mother truly had a sparkle in her eye and said, Well, it is unequivocal that my son adores me. For my birthday, he entered Freudian psychoanalysis and he talks about me five days a week. (laughs) I tell this joke because it is a well-known cliche that we enter therapy to talk about our parents. But one of my mentor's comments has really stuck with me over the years, that those of us that really need therapy had significant failures in attachment, which means that these all-too-important interpersonal milestones where we learn that we are safe in our bodies, that our fears can be spoken and not judged, and that someone will be there for us if we fail need to take place to give us good enough tools to manage life's disappointments. It is in this spirit that we often enter psychotherapy and the process of entering into these emotional landscapes is often not easy. When working with emotion in therapy, time slows down. Sometimes I just notice the melting of someone's cheek or a glimmer of sadness in their eye. Their voice may be angry, but their face is so sad. I will often comment on this, needing to take many steps back as the intellect runs away with stories. It is often not an easy moment. Something about getting into the body and feeling our grief can be so bittersweet. And the process of letting another into our pain is so different for everyone. But what seems universal is the desire to be seen, to feel safe, and to have our feet on the ground. I share with Justin in our interview today one of the first moments where I really felt that in my own life. I believe this notion of being at a resting place in our bodies where we can really key into our own sense of ourself is at the heart of Porges' work and examining why in our lives this possibly became threatening at some point is crucial. Porges 
talks a great deal about the notion of interoception, a perception of our inner world, the ability to be aware of and put language to what is happening to us on a physical, emotional level. This is so crucial for close, deep relationships and to be able to have a sense of ease. When there is a lot of grief waiting in the wings, this can be a very threatening prospect, and many contemporary psychotherapeutic modalities honor the depth of this process of opening up. I have spent countless hours with people who in one moment finally feel connection, and then this feeling of ease invites in years of pain. It can be confusing at first, but if we suspend judgment and allow our bodies to contain and express our memories and our longings, I believe we are better for it. I was impressed with Justin's candor, his tenderness around trying to work with teenagers, and his openness around what has driven him to this work. And without further ado, I present to you our interview. So, Justin, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. It means a lot to me, and I know you're you're a busy guy. I've been really interested in Stephen Porges's theories. I work a lot with you know the notion of the brain using more primitive strategies under threat. And when I came across your podcast, I was certainly really intrigued because it sounds like you've kind of really dove into this and it sounds very central to what you do. And so I'd love if you could kind of explain to my listeners in a nutshell how you see the polyvagal theory, what parts of it really kind of excite you, and then we can maybe jump from there together. Yeah, definitely. Well, first off, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Well, so the polyvagal theory, what excites me is, uh, well, I guess I should say I'm, I'm a therapist. I work primarily my day job is I work with teenagers in a school district. At nighttime, I do sessions with adults one-on-one through telehealth or virtual through screens, basically. And that's kind of what I'm working with right now. And polyvagal theory was something I stumbled upon a couple of years ago at this point. The basic idea of polyvagal theory is that we have within us, I guess central to it is the idea of the autonomic nervous system and that our bodies prepare for safety or defense or life threat without our conscious awareness. That's really one of the central core ideas of of polyvagal theory is that we're not always just us, like we're we're us, but with our biology primed for different situations is is the basic idea, I think. Polyvagal theory is the science of how mammals connect, including us human beings. It's how we connect to each other. But yeah, it's also how we respond to danger as well. Yeah, that's 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 interesting, right? At the beginning of psychotherapy, you know, Freud, I think, was really a proponent of the idea of, you know, the human being having the head of a human being and the body of an animal mm. and and that tension of having to always be interacting with, you know, what he then called primitive drives. But now, of course, mm. I think it's become very nuanced and widespread in all the ways that we've investigated this from a neuroscientific standpoint. I was struck that I don't I didn't know you worked with teenagers. Yeah. And I'd love to know is there a way that that 
not operates differently, but is is there a way that you see that differently? Or um, yeah, I'm so curious about some With of your political experiences. Theory? Well, yeah. What's particular? Uh, it's well, the the information still applies. I mean, it. it yeah, it still applies. I think with teens, though, the issue is: do, are they interested or not? <laughs> are they interested in the theory or not? Are they exactly? Are uh-huh. they interested in in anything or besides YouTube and TikTok or not? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and so, even if I get their buy-in in therapy, which is not easy, because the the teens that I serve, a lot of them are coming. Some of them are coming to me and saying, "Hey, I need some help," and they're ready to roll. Most of them, though, need to be kind of sold on the idea of therapy. They've been recommended by a parent or a school counselor, or they're kind of open to therapy, but very just trepidatious about it, I guess I'll say. And so it's not an easy sell. I mean, I, and I really have to explain them. This, this is what therapy is all about. Here's what I do in my role. And this is basic informed consent stuff. But for them, setting up those clear expectations is extremely important. So of course. even yeah, even if I get them that far, now it's like, are they even interested in political theory? And I find usually they're not until they say something like, why am I like this? Or why do I feel this way? And that happened a couple of weeks ago. I was working with a student and we were going through her behaviors that we were addressing. And she was like, why do I do this? And I'm like, well, I have some thoughts for you on that. And I said, how about next session? We'll go into, I'll, I'll explain some stuff and then we'll see if we can apply it to your life. And she was like, yeah, I'm open to that. Like she was really ready for that information. And I think that's true, not just for teenagers, but for adults as well. Like you kind of have to be open to new thought. Yeah. I think for the adults that I work with, they come to me and they've, they've already heard about me from me on the podcast or on my Instagram. And so they, they know what they're getting into as far as the framework that I come from. And they kind of get an idea of my personality, my voice, my vibe. And so they're coming in and they're saying, okay, I'm ready for help. <laughs> and in the, on that, in that way, things are a lot easier. I'll, I'll call it easier versus the teenagers who don't have that, that leg up on who I am and what I'm about and the framework and whatnot. So for the teenagers, it's, they really have to be at that point where they're, I, well, it's true for all of us, but in the populations I serve, the adults versus teenagers, they really have to be at that point where they're like, they're ready for new information and they're asking why, what, what's going on within me that is resulting in these behaviors that I'm trying to address. Well, what's crossing my mind is that the years of teenagehood in our culture, I think it's been memorialized in tons of films and books. And I mean, it is such a time of huge transition. And I was listening to a lecture earlier today, uh, the self-psychologist Heinz Kohut, who talks about the mirror stage and about narcissism and about how, you know, children, younger children need to be able to go through these stages of of narcissism, of being upset with their parents, of seeing their parents as gods, of, you know, wanting everything. And, and we have to sort of have a frame as parents, you know, in terms of what's going on for them developmentally so that we can situate their emotions in a particular context, right? Because you can't always be reacting to children's disappointment with the same brush, right? You have to know a little bit about the fact that when they're very little, they're supposed to r- fall on the ground and scream. And and this is not right. their fault. This is, as you pointed right. out, the autonomic nervous system doing its job. And I was curious if what your experience with teenagers, which I think is a you know hugely overwhelming experience, and there's probably a lot of parents listening to this podcast. I'm just curious how you in the back of your mind, when you're encountering a teenager who is in the throes of their personality changing and big life decisions, is that what you're holding in the back of your mind? I mean, you holding these sort of... Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. 
Oh, for sure. And well, for teenagers, one of their developmental milestones is the individuation. And that usually can show up. Yeah, I'll say usually it will show up through antagonism with their parents, the friction. And that's extremely normal and that's supposed to happen. And I think that you mentioned like culturally, the way that parents are expected to parent is through control. And so that creates even more friction. Mm. So I think kids are supposed to individuate, are supposed to identify with their own path, you know, whatever that looks like. And parents generally are not very good at supporting that and even encouraging it. And so what ends up happening is that there's that friction and then the teens that I, that I work with, at least, they end up attempting to show their parents don't control them through all the wrong ways, you know, rather than their parents setting them up for something that they're passionate about, which maybe the, the parents don't aren't into. Like you're into this thing. I don't care. You know, it's not my thing, but you're into this thing. Let, let's set you up for some success. Let's nurture whatever it is within you that excites you, you know, rather than doing that parents try to steer their kids one way or another and those kids will be like all right well i'll, I'll show you you don't control me by for the extreme situations i'll fail in school i'll drop out i'll join a gang and that's that's the kids i work with are very extreme gang involved drug use yeah so they, they attempt to show their individuation and that people in general don't control them and they'll connect with other peers and that's another developmental piece of this is that you're supposed to connect with peers and individuate so it's like these two things are off the rails in both directions and they connect with each other it just ends up disastrous with drug use or dropping out of school not doing sure basic school functioning that kind of stuff it's interesting right because we can't really talk about things like the development of the autonomics nervous system and our awareness of it and you mentioned earlier it's about how mammals connect right and yeah. Ultimately, so much of this also depends on the parents' awareness of their own response to threat, yeah. right? Because that's, you know, the parent has to regulate. I always say that you're yeah. not telling your kid how to regulate, you're showing your kid how to regulate. Very much. You know, so they're Very watching much. you on these unconscious levels. They're so like, oh, how are you responding to disappointment? And we, I think we get that wrong. You know, we all make mistakes in that direction. And there's a great book. I don't know if you've ever read uh, Gabor Mate and Gordon Neufeld's book, Hold On to Your Kids. No. They talk about that very thing, how they say that, you know, if a kid is really alienated, then of course they will just grab onto their friends the second they get old enough to have strong friendships. And there's this intensity and they call it the oh, yeah. blind leading the blind, right? Because ultimately... That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a really good metaphor for it. I, I wonder... That really works. Yeah. I haven't talked about this really in the in the podcast yet, but this notion that the brain takes, you know, 30 years, approximately 25, 30 years to grow. Yeah. And I'm curious if that factors into or since it sounds like you've read quite a bit of Stephen Porges's work, like has he does he talk at all about what is developing at the teenage years or maybe how their brains are different than not that I've seen. Not that I've seen. I haven't seen him go into that. Uh Peter Levine. He has, I'm, I'm right in the middle of his book, Trauma Through a Child's Eye. Mm -hmm. Trauma Through a Child's Eyes, yeah. And he discusses more about age-appropriate developmental milestones and whatnot. And he'll even, Peter Levine, are you familiar with, with his work? Sure, he yeah, he sure, develops somatic experiencing. He is very much about the body's, 
the way he frames it is the body's milestones. That's that's the, that's the way that I'm understanding it. And even things just coming just through birth that the body, the, the, the fetus needs to push and like has to yeah. go through these muscular motions yeah. of muscular. Yeah. Of, of exiting the womb. Right. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't happen, that it kind of stunts some growth in other, if that milestone's not met, then the other milestones physically may be hampered. So for him, so Peter Levine has some framing around that Porges, I don't, not that I've come across. I don't, I haven't seen him addressing what you're asking for. He's only written, he's written the polyvagal theory. He wrote the pocket guide to the polyvagal theory. And he has some work in clinical applications of the polyvagal theory. So there's only few. He has a lot of papers though. And I have yes. not read through all of his papers. Uh-huh. He's got a lot of stuff, that, a lot of peer reviewed stuff that he's written. And I haven't gone through that, all of it. That, that idea that you brought up, I think is very important. The idea of reaching, pushing through. Yeah. Of course, Pat Ogden worked very closely with Peter Levine and developed sensory motor mm. psychotherapy. And, mm. and at basis for her is this idea to, to, to reconnect people to that very instinct, which I think is tied to our ability to protect ourselves, right? And if that is thwarted or taken away, right? There's that great YouTube video, I think that millions of people have watched that Peter Levine put out of the of the polar bear that gets tranquilized and then continues running yeah. when it comes yeah. out. And, and I had this moment, and maybe this is just helpful for people to maybe understand, because my understanding is that, yeah, we grow up, but of course, our nervous systems may be at various developmental stages, even if we're in the bodies of adults when it comes to putting language to our emotions. And I remember one session I had with this beautiful couple, and I kept slowing this man down, and he was carrying immense grief, and he couldn't, he had no language for it. And at one point, like when his head was kind of bowing down, he actually just, re- he just reached over and he grabbed his wife's knee. And I knew in that moment, like I knew exactly what was happening, right? That that the embodied connection to his grief triggered this base instinct to, to reach out with his body. And though he was an adult yep. in his 40s, he somehow reconnected with that sensory motor ability to kind of reach. And it was very, very touching. Yeah. I'm curious, since, you know, this is a, and I'm sure it's similar for you in some respects, but but I shouldn't assume that. You also work very practically, I guess with adults or with the polyvagal theory. And I'm just curious what that what that looks like. Or I know you have a course that you also offer. Yeah, I have a course, like a 30-day thing, where it it helps people to identify what brings them to feelings of safety. It's called Building Safety Anchors. That's the idea is it's not exactly a, I wouldn't say that it's a trauma-releasing course or that you'll be resolved of trauma. That's not the idea. The idea is to identify what brings you to safety and to practice that. And so I help people to identify that and practice it uh, in small, small doses every day. That's, that's the idea. When it comes to working with polyvagal theory, I think I'm pretty darn practical. Yeah. I, I think in the way that it looks, it's kind of like I said before, where it's not something that I just launch into. It's something that I gauge whether someone is able to take it in or not. And if they're asking for new information, that's kind of my indicator. The times where I was in a session with a 15-year-old girl, and she was mostly checked out. She wasn't really into therapy. She she was it was mandated. She had to be in there. I'll, I'll put it in quotes therapy because if you're being mandated to, I don't know 
uh, therapeutic. It, it can it can be therapeutic. Yeah. But, no, I've been there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So she was being mandated to do ten sessions. She wasn't really into it, and we kind of had a little rapport, but it wasn't going very far. And so I was like, "Hey, do, do you mind if I share this thing with you with uh, you know about polygal theory?" I'm like, "Hey, there's some information I think would be helpful for you." And she's like, "Yeah, okay, go ahead." <laughs> <laughs> and so I went into it, and she was just at, you know at, at the end of it, just talking about just I mean just very briefly about the different states and nervous system. I was like, "Yeah, so what do you think?" And she goes, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I just, I just, I was being playful. I'm like, I just shared with you some really important information that a lot of people find life altering. And I think it's really important. She goes, yeah, my dad says stuff like that. Ah. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, okay. So it's, someone really has to be asking and ready for it. And that's on a very practical level. That's what it could look like. I took my dad once to see. It was David Cronenberg interviewing Stephen King live in Toronto. And David Cronenberg was like knee deep in his film, A Dangerous Method about Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. Hmm. And so this was, you know, it wasn't about, the interview wasn't about his film. It was about interviewing Stephen King. But halfway through the interview, (laughs) David Cronenberg I think he asked a 15 minute question, like in my mind, like, cause I know this stuff, right? I, I saw him like talking about Carl Jung, about the collective unconscious, about archetypes. And like, he just was basically regurgitating probably all this research he was doing for the film. And then he yeah. finally got to his point and he asked Stephen King, he was like, oh, do you think, do you think your the characters in your novels, you know, all these you know, horror stories and characters, he's like, do you think they come from this collective unconscious? Like after 15 minutes of asking, Stephen King's like, I think that's a bunch of horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I and love that was like it. the end. There's like this long silence and and they just moved on. <laughs> I, I, I love that. And I think that I haven't tried talking about this before, so we'll see where it goes. I think that us therapists and people in psychology field get really comfortable with our theories of mind and character and change and development. We get really comfortable with our ideas. But when it comes down to it, can we be with that person in the room, totally. connect with them? Like that for me has gone so much further, just the basic fundamental therapy skills. Can I listen? Can I understand? Can I exude that I care? Can I basic stuff? And when you do that, it, it go to me, it goes pretty darn far. And especially if I, now I'm connecting it with political theory, but also some pieces of somatic, I'm not trained in somatic experiencing, but understanding the somatic pieces of therapy. Now that I've got the basics, I'll say down and you never have them quite down, I don't think, but I'm doing the basics pretty well. Plus I'm understanding the somatic pieces of what's happening in therapy and I can bring people's attention to that. I can help them titrate those feelings. I can help them to pendulate between feelings of pain and safety. Now that I'm doing these things, plus my basic fundamental skills, I feel like I'm a lot more effective as a therapist. Sure. And I can go in there and pontificate about you know this archetype and that archetype and this theory of change and blah 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 but it's can i be with you in the moment can i feel what you're feeling can i help you come to safety on a very practical level a lot of times it just comes down to that i think well and i think it's very seductive for all of us for the therapist sure and the patient going into therapy and I think it relates to polyvagal theory in the sense that we want to defend ourselves intellectually, right? Against, oh, against yeah. fear and threat. And so totally. 
So to come in out of the world into therapy where the age of Amazon and one historian called it kind of a liquid society. So it's like we all want everything now with a drone at our door. And then to come into therapy and try to slow down and build a relationship, I know that I'm, I don't want to say I'm always fighting against it because I'm always keeping the person in mind that they're genuinely, even if someone's looking for answers, they're genuinely there to connect also and to feel better. But there is this often a shift where, you know, you realize it's not going to come top down, right? It's not going to come from telling somebody mm. something. And and I guess you're right, like yeah. us being aware of our own response to that fear to try to be smart, to have theories. And that was my feedback, actually, in my graduate work. I uh, was told by a number of people that I would just sort of spew spew theories. <laughs> and, you know, I just, yeah. sound, you know, I sounded smart. I'm curious how you, so how did you come to this? Like, there must be a personal, you know, they say all research is me-search, right? Like how? Dude, yeah, I, yeah, I, w- I would agree with that. And when it came to political theory, there was a client, a student I was working with, heavy, heavy, heavy trauma history that we had, I mean, literally scratched the surface with. They had written a letter to me. They had written it at home and they gave it to me during a session disclosing this. I'm not going to go into anything at sure. all, but they just named this stuff happened to me when I was younger. And that was it. So the point is heavy, heavy trauma history, heavy amount of dissociation. In session, out of session, panic attacks in session before set. I mean, just highly dysregulated. And I knew that I just wasn't doing a very good job. I mean, I I was doing the best I could, but there was just something missing. There was something I wasn't getting. And working in the school district, I don't get summers off, so I I can meet with students during the summer. Most of them don't want to. (laughs) Most of them just want their summer, Mm -hmm. but. This student, we were meeting during the summer, but but I have more time during the summer, basically, is, is the idea. So I had more time to, I can develop curriculum or programs or groups. I can also do professional research uh, development research. So the student I was working with, and I knew I wasn't effective. It didn't seem like I was being effective, at least in like tangible, measurable results. I think there was baby steps being made. And for this student in particular, that was something but I like the home run and I like the, I like to see lots of change. I, I want to see my, my students and clients I work with improve. Right. So I was like, I okay, got something I'm missing here. Let me uh, start from scratch. And I knew it had something to do with trauma. And up until that point, you know, I had heard in workshops and seminars, lectures in school that trauma lives in the body, but no one ever explained how I had never once heard a competent explanation of what the hell that meant. Mm-hmm. Like never. I'm like, I kept hearing it and I'm like, okay, I, I get it, but what do you mean? Yes. And so I, that summer I was, I said, I'm, I'm going to assume I know nothing about trauma and I'm going to start, start from scratch. I went on to Google and I typed in trauma and I just started from, from zero. And pretty early on, I stumbled upon uh, Peter Levine and somatic experiencing. And I saw the polar bear video. I saw him working with a veteran on stage. I forget his name. Do you remember those? Are you familiar with those? He was like on stage working with his veteran about his PTSD. And he was having, what was it? His his jaw was like... Uh, yeah, no, I don't remember this video. Oh, okay. So this he had, he was up there with like this stuck, stuck energy. I don't know how else to put it right now, but Peter Levine had him do this thing where he's like focused on his jaw and opening yes. it slowly. 
And it was just that mindful awareness of it. And the guy saw this instant relief, but I'm like, this is nonsense. This is BS. I don't buy into it. But then I'm like, okay, I'm, but I'm also assuming I know nothing. So I'll, I'll keep going with it. And then I saw like the polar bear video. I saw him in interviews and talking about somatic experiencing. And I'm like, okay, so there's something here. Maybe I just don't know. It. Maybe I just don't get it because I haven't been taught it. And then from there, just, you know, YouTube recommends different videos and whatnot. And so then I stumbled upon Stephen Porges and his lectures. And that's where Porges goes more deeply into what Levine does. He, Levine has the, he can go deeply into it, but Porges is one, really the one that goes deeper into the science of it. And so when I saw him doing his lectures about autonomic nervous system and about how we respond to danger, but also how we connect with each other, I'm like, this, this is clicking. Like something about this makes a lot of sense to mm -hmm. me. He's very academic, but it was understandable enough. Some of it I wasn't getting, but some of it was like, oh, that makes sense. And things really started to click. And, make, and he, was start, he talked about dissociation a couple times, about the shutdown system. And that had everything to do with the client that I was struggling with. Starting from scratch with trauma and really trying to understand what is meant by it being carried in the body. Justin mentions one of the giants in somatic research, Peter Levine, who has revolutionized our sensitivity and understanding of the immense need our body has to complete our response to threatening events. When we come back, Justin does a beautiful job of explaining, amongst other things, the difference between going into shutdown and some of the mixed states we can find ourselves in, which is important to understand as clinicians, but also to appreciate in our personal lives to more discreetly understand what is happening to us when we are scared and overwhelmed. I wanted to pause just to thank you for listening. Nothing is more meaningful than getting your feedback and engaging in dialogue with you. You can find me on Instagram at I am Mitchell Smolkin, and you can head to my website, mitchellsmolkin.com, for more resources and information about ways to connect further. I had the most amazing conversation with Dr. Gabor Mate last week. What an honor and pleasure to speak to somebody who I have thought about and respected for many, many years. And if you couldn't attend, please stay tuned for the release of our conversation next week. Lastly, if you haven't already rated and reviewed the podcast, I would be touched and humbled if you would take a few minutes to do so. As Justin says later in our interview, there is a need to reach people who may be suffering and do not understand some of the more subtle layers of why their bodies are doing what they are doing. And it is equally fulfilling for me when I am able to help put some scaffolding around someone's experience who may have previously been confused or felt broken. Now, back to our conversation. A lot of people don't know these names. Many will, who tune in. But I think you named something that's very important to distinguish Stephen Porter's contribution, which is a shutdown system, right? The freeze yeah. component. And I wonder if you could just, in layman's terms, maybe help people yeah. understand what you're referring to. So Portis, he 
introduce the theory. This is the heart of the political theory is that I don't want to get too, too, too much in the science, but we, we basically shut down, we collapse, we immobilize that human mammals, not just mammals, actually, I think all species can, in the face of threat, we can completely immobilize, pass out, faint as a means of survival, which is different than the flight fight response, which is different than being safe and social and, and connecting with each other. So he that, that stemmed from his work on heart rate variability in infants, I think, at, at that time. So that he has there's its own like history to that. But he, yeah, he's the one who theorized that there are two parasympathetic systems. One of them is for safety and social engagement. And the other one is for defense, for immobilization collapse. But that's different than shutdown is different than freeze. So according to polyvagal theory, freeze is actually what we call a mixed state. So we have our primary states of safe and social, which is connected to the ventral vagal system, the flight fight system, which is sympathetic, and the shutdown system, which is the other parasympathetic, the dorsal vagal parasympathetic. So these three states have their own biological pa- mm-hmm. pathways. Mm-hmm. They exist on their own and have evolutionary functions within them that helped the species to survive, right? But they exist on their own. So that's different than something like freeze, which is a mixed state where we have the shutdown state along with the flight fight state. Mm -hmm. So both of those pathways, those biological pathways are active at the same time. So when we immobilize and shut down, plus we're revved up with flight fight, that results in this mixed state of freeze where we're really tense, but immobile. Yeah. So it's like a panic attack. It can be like a panic attack. Peter Levine talks a lot about the freeze mixed state shock trauma is kind of what he's known for is there's a thing that we survived that maybe left left us in a traumatized state and poor just gives the science of that but also the different utilizations of the of the vagus nerve and how that can look in connection and, and responding to danger and this i think in this we wrote a little bit about or i talked about this if i'm not mistaken goes into a little bit the phylogenic nature right which is that the shutdown mm-hmm. That really is the kind of one of the oldest, like that's, you know, it's, it's like looking into a reptiles, like there's no, like you're done. And just to be sensitive about people who are listening, but my sense when I'm meeting with people or trying to help people maybe embody huge amounts of grief, you know, I, I come across that in my work where there's just this, yeah, someone said this week, right? He said, I just, I don't care anymore. And I don't want to characterize that absolutely as as a shutdown state but there were certainly echoes of a the degree to which the fatigue and just yeah. you know has just left almost something that that just comes across as just numb you know just kind of like not totally and i find it's that very much a shutdown thing yeah i find that tricky you know sometimes to sit with right like when i notice it i'm yeah. like i'm like oh like that okay that makes sense <laughs> you know yeah, totally. And what you're describing. So when, when people say something like, I don't care anymore, that's just an example of we have to, within ourselves or as therapists, differentiate, like, what's the energy behind that? And like you mentioned, the fatigue and the numbness, very much a shutdown thing. And so when you say, I don't care anymore, it might be a true reflection of I have no caring within me. I have no feeling, no motivation, no passion. I, I literally lack that spark within me and I don't care. But it could also be someone who's in more of a fight state saying like, well, I don't give a blankety blank sure, anymore. Like sure. that's the energy behind it is more aggressive and, and angry. So that's more of a fight state. So the words are, I don't care anymore, but the energy behind it can can be two different things, right? So it's really, it's important that we um, differentiate. Well, what's the energy behind that? 
you know, is driving that, right? But yeah, it's very much a shutdown thing. I loved coming across this just because I think it, my initial love when I was a teenager was finding the work of Carl Jung. And a lot of people are not familiar with the fact that they were already measuring heart rate, sweat glands in 1905 mm -hmm. with the word association experiments, which led to the lie detector test, right? That's how they mm -hmm. came to the lie detector test was actually these experiments in Zurich where they were reading out a list of a hundred words to people and they were measuring how they respond and they were measuring dissociation. So if you say mother to somebody and for the next three words, the person either like their times go off the charts or they're lagging or they can't remember they know the person has dissociated. And he writes in an interesting way about the nervous system, although at a level that I think was respective of what they knew back then. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, right, you right. know, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. It's a little primitive with respect to what we know now about Porges's work and Peter Levine's work and, you know, you name it, Antonio Damasio. And there's a whole bunch of folks that have just, I think, kicked the ball so much further. But as a person, I find great relief in understanding that we're always moving in and out of these states. Yeah. I had an idea for a book this week because there's there's so much division within our philosophical schools and psychotherapy and, you know, Melanie Klein, I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She took Freud's work and was in England and she was sort of the first object relations therapist. And she talked about what she talked about was sort of schizoid paranoid states and depressive states. So early in psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, they were basically trying to get people out of these sort of paranoid states where you have these paranoid fantasies, imagining the worst. And she called it moving into a depressive state, you know, which she didn't mean you're depressed, mm -hmm. but it's a more neurotic, you're kind of grateful for what you have. You're able to have sort of nuanced, you can have doubt, you know, all the things that we refer to when we're in a more social state, as opposed to when mm -hmm. we move into these antisocial states and our thinking becomes very narrow, right? Everything's black and white, good and bad. I'm under threat or right. not. And I, I just feel lucky yeah. to have come across this. Not that in those moments totally. when I'm, when I'm overwhelmed, it doesn't matter if I know it, I'm still, <laughs> yeah, true. but certainly true. when you, when you come back. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. This is not, it's, it's newish, but, uh, well, the political theory in particular, he'd been working on it since like, uh, early 70s at, le mm -hmm. at least but it became more popularized in 94 and then it's hitting maybe the past 10 years or so in our field pretty heavy but the world of psychophysiology he stems from that the world of psychophysiology has been around for longer than that and there's the physical aspect of change of the body is something that i think in the world of therapy we have not done very well with although you mentioned you know, some pretty early names there. You said Jung and Freud and whatnot. So they may have been on something and then we just lost it along the way that there is a connection to the body and, and the mind and the political theory is, and it feels like we're coming, maybe coming back to that. Yeah, I think it's been evolving the whole time. I, I just think that people like, you know, it's human nature to feel like you're creating something. <laughs> and we are, right? Everybody adds sure. their own subjectivity to it. Yeah, I, I think that in some ways, though, we've probably devolved in our heavy, heavy focus on thoughts being the driver of feelings or being the driver of behavior. And that's not entirely accurate whatsoever. Sure. Thoughts are extremely important, but 
but to focus on thoughts as the problem, I think is is the wrong way to go about it. I think it's the opposite direction, personally. Uh, to, to focus on you know, behavior is important, and yeah, we can learn behavior, but to focus on changing behavior simply through just the behavioral aspects of it, you're missing a huge chunk of change. And polylegal theory helps us to understand that there's more to this stuff that there is outside of the conscious realm. And I don't mean subconscious. I mean, although maybe we're saying the same thing, I mean, through neuroception, through the process of brainstem filtering of external or an in internal uh, stimuli, like that there are autonomic responses within us that are kind of universal. A lot of this stuff is just universal. And, you know, we don't, we're not gonna get that through CBT. We're not gonna get that through behavioral reinforcements or whatnot. We're not really looking at that stuff. So polyvagal theory, somatic experiencing, somatic experiencing in particular, I think does a really good job with looking at thoughts and looking at the somatics and looking at behavior and does a really good job of tying these all together in a cohesive theory. And polyvagal theory is the science that kind of undergirds that, is what I would say. So much more comprehensive, but not discounting any of these pieces, you know, like they're all a part of the, of the big puzzle. No, I'm with you. And I tend to see so much of the movements in therapy as being connected to culture in many ways. And sure. Stephen Porges, I'm almost positive it was him. He was giving a lecture to like, I don't know, 500 economists or something. And, you know, he was saying something like, do you actually think you're making decisions? <laughs> You know, do you really think you're making decisions? And he talked about fear mm. and how they're being driven by them. And it, it just, mm. it, it feels to me like a, a cultural shift. I think something to do with patriarchy as well. You know, the kind of mind over matter. I mean, it, it, it must have influenced psychology in many ways. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I work in Sweden. I work with a lot of expats. So I, I see such a an incredibly multicultural group. And even just this morning... I, I run here and we were in the car and I have colleagues from England <laughs> who are working here. And they said something like, you know, people cry in the office here in Sweden, like staff are crying all the time. And back in England, she was saying they don't, people won't really cry at work. They won't come into your office and cry. And I just, yeah, I find, uh, like you said, you know, uh, there's a cultural component to this, but, and at the same time, it's universal. Sure. And that's the beautiful thing about it. There's definitely universal aspects with the political theory. There's absolutely universal aspects. There's things that just as organisms, just as mammalian organisms that we are going to commonly respond to. And it, it looks different person to person, but generally there, there, you know, if I were to all of a sudden look at you with wide eyes and then we're not in person, but if I just looked at you with wide eyes and just stared, you're going to react to that. And so would the next person. And so would the next person that's across the world. Because if if I go wide-eyed, that's a cue of danger. Yes. If I sit in stillness and, and remove my social ability, like that's a cue of danger. Your, your, your system's going to be like, Justin just removed his safety. My cues of safety are now removed. Your system's going to respond in, a, in more of a defensive way. And so will the person across the world. They'll do the same thing, I, I would think. It might look different, but yes. they'll basically have that same autonomic response. Yeah, people haven't seen them on YouTube. You can look at the... I think it's Edtronics, right? The initial still-faced experiment. Oh, yeah. And then they did it with dads. I think in the last 10 years, it was done with mums first. And then with dads, they just recently did it where the parent all of a sudden goes blank mid-play. Yeah. And then you yeah, just watch yeah, the yeah, child yeah. fall apart. And, and I think those are great videos to watch. Just Google it because 
it just normalizes what so much, so many of us experience day to day, whether you're with your partner, whether you need, you, you need something from the government or, or your phone bill was wrong. And, you know, you go in or you call and somebody's affect is so flat. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden you notice yourself getting just anxious. It's like, well, of course, mm-hmm. because there's just this denial of relationship there and it makes a difference. It really makes a difference. Yeah. Just those basic sociability. And it's not something we can, we guess we can kind of fake it, but not really. I don't think we can quite fake it. I think when someone fakes it, you pick up on it and it doesn't feel genuine. And that's a cue of danger in and of itself. But yeah, it makes a difference. It makes it. Yeah. I always say there's so much faking going on in the sense that, you know, it's okay for a toddler to be on the subway running around, asking people questions, saying whatever comes to their mind. Mommy, look at the colors. Mommy, look, the sun is out. Mommy, look. You know, when a 30 year old is doing it, you're a bit, you get a bit nervous, you know? And so, (laughs) you know, I've come to, as I get older, these are all good enough exercises and that's not to mind the pun, make it vague. (laughs) Uh, I think that what we're talking about is extremely uh, specific to our ability. You know, I called this podcast, the dignity of suffering. And the reason I brought you on and wanted to talk to you is because I think that understanding the connections to how we grew up, did anybody model for us what it meant to regulate these fear systems? Were they always on growing up? Was one of our parents maybe in shutdown for most of our upbringing? That's important for us to understand ourselves as adults, to begin to become curious about about why maybe we have a hard time dealing with overwhelming emotion, grief, difficult situations. Yeah. and yeah. But we're all learning. It's not a wild goose chase. It's it's an incremental. No. As a last question, I mean, what I don't really know how to ask this, but I'm guess like what you know we're just meeting, and I'm so happy to have you on. But like, what what keeps you up at night? You, you wrote, I love what you said, right? You're a licensed marriage and family therapist that is obsessed with the polyvagal theory. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just curious, what gets your heart burning? I, I like teaching this stuff. It's something that motivates me. I, I like putting. The thoughts out there in the podcasts, you know, it's just something I like to volunteer my time to do. It's it's fulfilling. Why do it? Why why put so much energy into trying to get people to know more about this? Part of it is I just feel like I have to, and that's something we can uh, that might be worth going into, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> but I just I feel like I have to. You know, it, if I didn't, uh, I don't think I'd feel whole. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's just that. So maybe it's just completely selfish and I'm fulfilling some sort of impulse, <laughs> which I can't satiate. So it's, it's, but I, I also, the, the payoff of people writing to me saying that they're benefiting and they're sharing it with others. I love the fact that so many therapists and clients are using this, my information, my podcast in their therapy, like that fulfills me. I really, I recently realized like how fulfilling that is for me to know. So I love the process of therapy. It's yeah. I, you know, and to know that I'm impacting someone else's therapeutic process in a positive way is extremely fulfilling. Like I just, that does it for me. People write to me or or send me messages or DM or whatever saying that it's impacted their life in a positive way. It's very fulfilling. I think I, I think I get a sense of connection through that and that's fulfilling for me. I live in more of a shutdown state day to day, not debilitating, but it's there. Like I notice it. So for me, doing a podcast by myself at nighttime is a, is a very safe way for me to connect, oddly, right? But then when it, it is, in a sense, connecting, because I hear from people in a way that I can control through email uh-huh. <laughs> or DM, 
And so I'm like, okay, this is a way that I can connect that feels safe. So maybe there's there, the, the avenue of podcasting works for me. But I also love doing this, where we meet with a shared topic that we're passionate about. This feels safe. Like this just dry. I feel motivated. I feel, I love the process of therapy. And I think you have a lot to teach and just all the names you're dropping. I'm like, well, I got to brush up on my stuff, you know, cause like this excite all this excites me. Yeah. This, me too. This, yeah like it's just self-motivating and it, it gets my engine going. And I think in the past I've had more flight by energy uh, attached to it. So it felt like it's more pressured thing. Like I had to do, and that's still kind of there, but it's more of now it's just fulfilling. The, the flight fight defensiveness as I work on myself has gone down. And so the pressure to create, and I, I had a coach also who was phenomenal. The pressure to create has gone down, but the impulse to just share and to benefit has not exactly gone down. So my self-care has gone up, but that it's still there. Like I still just want to impact the world in a positive way and to help people, you know, to find their own regulation or, or new understandings. And, and if they, if I could do that, if I just gave them a new, paradigm to understand themselves through i mean I don't, know, I, I don't know it's worth it it's genuinely just worth it for me thank you for sharing that you know in my last podcast i talked i'm also a a, a performer i've been on stage for many years and hmm. went to an arts high school in what, in what capacity no i'm a singer actor you know wow I, really I've, I've studied dance but i would never call myself a dancer because that would be very <laughs> Very harmful to all the dancers that actually can dance. <laughs> but, you know, I shared, I remember I was doing Carousel. It's a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. And I was playing the lead in Toronto, Billy Bigelow. And I remember I was in the wing. I was, how old was I? Maybe 30 years old. And I was in the wing and I was like, I'm not nervous to go out on stage. I remember standing there in the dark. I don't think I've ever told the story, maybe just to my wife. I don't even know if I told her the story. And I and I was like in my body and I was like, oh my God, I'm I'm excited to go out. And I mean, it was a huge role. It's my favorite yeah. role I ever played. He gets to sing, you know, he's on stage the whole time in these huge songs. And and I knew, like I knew in that moment, I was like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. I, I can enjoy it. Like I can be in this. And and I I you know, I don't know if I'm projecting on you and he said, you have to do it, but mm. I suspect there's an echo or something in there when you see other people be able to be more embodied, have discreet feelings, not walk around in states of stress. Because one of the things that I, and I'll probably repeat it a lot on this podcast, but my understanding is that the vast majority of what you and I are talking about these systems, they're antisocial antisocial in the sense that, as you say, we're not connecting in the moment. And I, and I want to correct something I said yeah, in, defense, my, yeah. in my last podcast. This is Damasio's words, not mine. I gave the example of somebody driving, for instance, having a great conversation, laughing with their friend, and then you know they see the car screaming up to them and immediately they forget the conversation. They don't even know they forgot the conversation. All yeah. they're doing is focusing on getting out of the way, whatever, making a decision. And they, and then they, you know, they come back, they notice their heart is racing. And I'd made the comment in the last podcast, I had said, these are antisocial mechanisms. And of course that can be misconstrued. They're very social because it's keeping you alive. So in that sense, in that sense, one might argue, well, nothing is more social than running in front of a bus to save your kid. Sure. Yeah. I meant it from the point of view of what you and I are doing, where we can think, we can feel, yeah. <laughs> we 
we can laugh. Yeah. I mean, that's what I meant, that that so much of what happens right. to us under threat takes us out of relationship in the conventional sense. And and ho- yeah. hopefully what happens then allows us to come back without dying. <laughs> yeah, well, there's also the, the sociability aspect of this is that if you're in that car with somebody who's safe, they can actually help you through co-regulation. Hmm. So they can help you through their own safety cues to re- re-regulate and come back up what we call a political ladder into the state of safety and social connection. So the sociability never, it's never gone. Like it's always potential, I'll say it's always potentially there. And these these states, I know what you mean by antisocial, but they're they're states of defense if if they're active just on their own. But as long as we have the pathways responsible for safety and social connection, if those are active enough, then the states of defense are repurposed for something else. So we can mobilize and call that play. Or we can shut down, but call it stillness, uh, or shut down, be immobilized, basically. So all these, the defensive states on their own are used for defense, or maybe for you know rescuing somebody. But the defensive states, when active along with the social state, are used for pro-social activities, yes. for, for pro-social sure. engagement, like play or, or or being still together. So it's never. Like the sociability aspect is always at least potentially there. And if it's if it is truly gone and someone really is in a defensive state, having safe people around them can help them to come back to that state of safety and social connection. So I know what you mean. And you also use the term, I think you said fear-based, fear-based states. But fear, according to somatic experiencing at least, fear is not an issue until the impulse to run or the impulse mm. to fight cannot be completed. Mm. So like if you've ever been in a situation where like I remember being a kid and uh, walking home and there was a dog across the street and that impulse to run kicked up within me. I have no idea if it was safe or not, but something within me told me to like to run. Right. And as I started to run, it chased after me, probably to play. I have no idea. But the point is, while I was running, I didn't really feel fear mm. because I was able to use yes, my system right. sure. to yeah, run. Right. Yeah. Right. Now, if something had gotten in my way, yes, then the fear would probably kick on. I remember I was I did a presentation to some police recently with with a coworker, and we were talking about this, and he shared an example where there was outside the police precinct, there was some sort of shooting going on. His impulse was to grab his stuff, get in his car and run right into the, into the middle of the thing, right? And he said that he got his stuff, he had his gun ready, he got in his car, he was driving out, and he's like, I, I was pumped up. I wasn't scared. I was pumped up and ready yes, to go. Sure. But the gate to get out of the precinct was slowly opening. <laughs> and so then it's like, as I sat there, then I noticed yes. all these thoughts started popping into yes. my mind, and then I started to feel something different. It wasn't the, just the adrenaline. Now it was like a little bit of worry. He called it worry or nervousness. But what he's describing is this energy sitting in your system you can't use, and now it's starting to turn into fear. So, but once the gate opened, he went out, he was fine. But it's like, if you can't use it, then fear becomes an issue. But if you're using the energy, you're using the impulse, fear is not really an issue. Yes, that's right. As long as you're able to utilize it. Yeah. Bessel van der Kolk has a great, great anecdotes about this, which is that there were more cases of PTSD after Hurricane Katrina than after 9-11. Because mm. if you look at the images of 9-11, most people could run away, yeah. whereas yeah. in flooding, you're often stuck yeah. and your avenue True. of escape is gone. And so it makes sense. Yeah. And, and then on top of that, you're rescued in a very you know narrow you know container very often to get pulled up to these helicopters. 
And there were yeah, much more true. cases of people's bodies getting traumatized, like you're saying, because then, then it kicks in, right? Yeah. I work a lot with couples, and I've never really had this thought before, but you know, Jung, you mentioned individuation before, and of course that was Carl Jung's big, big thing in his project. And he has a line, you know, this is one of our exams when we're training as psychoanalysts, and it's to, to sort of talk about what individuation is. And Jung said, you know, individuation is not just leaving society and whatever, becoming yourself and then, you know, never coming back. Yeah. He yeah. said, it's about sort of, as you pointed out, right, going into the things that we love, understanding them and bringing them back. And my understanding, at least with couples that I work with, as you pointed out, it's, can we come back and find language for what happened to us or what did make us pull away, go into a free state, you know, go into fight and mm. flight? Can we find a way with, you know, as you mentioned, neuroception, I think earlier, and, and have some some perception of what we're doing. For me, that's what relationship is, right? When I mentioned the antisocial tendency, you're right. If it's not connected to then how that can be very progressive, <laughs> you know, in the mm -hmm. way that you even learn about somebody, in the way that, that I think that's what love is actually, because we all have some matrix within us of how this operates. And if we can find a way to let somebody in, I think that's twofold. Mm -hmm. I think one, it makes us feel safer fundamentally just to be able to talk about it. But the second thing I think is that yeah. it, it's how we get to know each other because this is what we're, what's going on for us. Anything else you want people to know mm -hmm. about you before we wrap up where they can find you? I'll have your notes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the best place to find me is just justinlmft.com. That's from there, you can connect to the blog and the podcasts and the course and other just free resources that I have there. JustinLMFT.com. That's, that's the best starting point. Cool. And the name of the podcast is Stuck Not Broken. Stuck Not Broken. Yep. Stuck Not Broken. Which I love. If, no, if, you, if you're, I'm glad you do. Yeah. If you are starting off with that, start with episode 101. It used to be one, episode one, but I recently went back into the political theory with a brand new just understanding. Oh, cool. and clarity so episode 101 is my recommended starting point and i'm it's a i call it a master class like i really just am sharing everything i possibly know in a pretty cohesive clear way about political theory yeah it's about it starts episode 101 or started can't wait to listen to it thank you All so right. much for coming on it was an absolute pleasure yeah thank you so much i really enjoyed justin's gentleness and pace there was a kind of genuine care and sensibility around being with people and allowing them to come to these ideas and their own experience with a sense of integrity and dignity. I particularly loved how he shared with me a bit about himself, his own efforts to come out and open up about what matters to him, and insinuating that that often isn't easy. I never want to stray from that idea in my work and in this podcast that every time we reveal ourselves and foster new connections, it is like starting a new chapter, staring at the blank page and putting pen to paper. We want to hang on to these fixed versions of ourselves, identities that we create to survive, but ultimately, relationships are about letting others touch the broken edges, and nothing is more magical than when you are in the presence of someone who is on the edge of their comfort zone. This really allows us to soften as we know when someone is there 
that it is safe and that they are trying. I am dedicating this podcast to all of you out there who are trying to stay present with these parts of yourselves. It is my honor to have the space to be there with you. Thank you for listening. I remain faithfully yours.